Amen. Praise the Lord. I'm going to start tonight in Hebrews chapter 11. I want to talk to you about some things regarding the subject of faith. We know that faith is necessary to please God. Faith is necessary to receive from God. And that's why, it's, uh, that's why faith is necessary to please him. God's not pleased unless you're receiving from him uh, those things which Jesus purchased for us through his crucifixion, his uh, substitute work on the cross, and through his resurrection. Hebrews 11, verse 1, it says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Right off the bat, in the scripture that defines faith more clearly or uh, uh, accurately than, than any other scripture we have, you can see a conflict between this thing called faith and what we can see. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18 tells us to look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things that are seen are temporal. That means the word temporal that's used in the King James means subject to change. But the things which are not seen are eternal. If we go a few verses down in Hebrews chapter 11, we find out that the worlds and everything in this physical realm, everything pertaining to this physical realm, was created by the unseen realm, the spirit realm. And it's from the spirit realm that the source of all power comes. For that reason... The Bible gives us a lot of examples of faith in action. People that walked by faith and, and lived by faith, utilized their faith to receive something from God. Now, some examples that we have are more um, concise than other examples. Some examples give us more detail. For example, Matthew chapter 8, verse 1, we, or, or Matthew chapter 8, tells us the story about the centurion. And Jesus identified his faith as great faith. Now, the thing that uh, set him apart from anybody else Jesus had seen up until that point in time was he was a Roman officer. He, had, uh, he was a centurion, which means he had 100 soldiers subject to him. It would be what we would consider to be a captain, perhaps, in the military today. But the centurion came to Jesus. Jesus agreed to go with him to his house or declared that he would go to his house and heal his servant. The centurion said, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. He said, speak the word only and my servant will be healed. And then he explained that he understood authority. He understood how Jesus' authority over sickness worked because he knew how authority worked in his life and, and job, career as a soldier. He said, I've got servants and I tell them what to do and they do it. I've got soldiers under me and I tell them what to do and they do it. He recognized that Jesus had authority over sickness and disease. What he heard about Jesus was sufficient to enable him to believe that Jesus had authority over sickness. And since he had authority over sickness, his physical presence wasn't necessary. Now, folks, if we could get a hold of that, if the modern-day church could get a hold of that, the physical presence of Jesus was not necessary even when he was here on the earth for people to receive their healing. See, a lot of times people will make excuses and say, well, but if I lived when Jesus was here on the earth, I could have taken hold of my healing. I could have received my healing. But it's just so hard for us now that we live in a day where you can't see Jesus. Well, folks, the centurion, his measure of faith, the greatness of his faith, shows that the physical presence of Jesus has never been necessary. Because it's about the word. We've got the story of the woman with the issue of blood in Mark chapter 5. It gives us a little bit more information about her. It tells us when she heard of Jesus, she came in the press behind for she said, if I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. Now, the centurion's great faith was based on the spoken word. 
the woman with the issue of blood in Mark chapter 5 hears of Jesus and it stirs faith in her heart such that she says, if I can just touch his clothes, I'll be whole. Well, when she did, the, the uh, power of God went into her, went out of Jesus and into her, and she was healed of that plague. And that's when Jesus stopped and wanted to know who touched him. The disciples answered the multitude throng with thee, which just simply means that everybody that can touch you is trying to touch you. It seems to be a common theme in Jesus' ministry that because of the, the miracles and the signs and the wonders, the great and mighty works that were done in him and through him, since human nature hasn't changed, every time he went anywhere, and people knew about it, there was a crowd that would gather to try to touch him. But it wasn't the physical touch of Jesus that brought healing to the sick. We know that because the disciples are in effect saying the whole multitude is touching you. Everybody that can push close enough to get to you is touching you. And so it seemed like a stupid question to them, who touched me? But Jesus knew somebody had touched him differently. He identifies the difference in what the woman with the issue of blood did, which was touching physically, and what everybody else in the crowd is doing, which is touching him physically. She's the only one that got anything, and the thing that Jesus said was different from her than anybody and everybody else in the crowd was this thing called faith. This thing called faith. But then we have Abraham. The example that we have of Abraham's faith is more detailed, more expansive in its description than any other thing that we've got in the Scripture. And here's why. In the Old Testament, the Holy Ghost inspired that the events concerning Abraham's faith were recorded. So we've got an Old Testament Holy Ghost inspired account. But then in Romans chapter 4, Paul is inspired by the Holy Ghost to give us the details, the things that he understood from the Old Testament account of Abraham's faith. He gives us a Holy Ghost confirmation of all the ins and outs and the important aspects of Abraham's faith. Now, folks, the Bible says in Romans chapter 10 and verse 17, so then faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word. The word of God always has to be the basis for faith. There's no other way to get faith other than hearing the word. Now, you may remember we quoted 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 18 a minute ago where it says that we should look at the things not seen, not the things which are seen. The things which are seen or the physical realm is temporal, subject to change. But the things which are not seen are eternal. They never change. The real power in life comes from the spiritual or the unseen realm. Now, what's in that unseen realm? And how can we expect, be expected to look at something that you can't see? Well, the only way we can see over into the unseen realm is to accept what the Bible says about God and about the spirit realm itself. Turn with me to Romans chapter 4. Let's look a little bit at Abraham. I had somebody ask me one time, why do you talk about Abraham so much? Because the Bible talks about Abraham so much. We'll start in verse 17. It picks up the story with God speaking to Abraham or making the promise to Abraham of children. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations. I want you to understand something about God, folks. He always talks about things in the past tense. He said to Abraham, I have made you a father of nations. He said that to him many, many years before Abraham ever had children. God speaks of things as if they are done. 
Now, some of the things that he speaks of as if they are done weren't done and weren't completed until after Jesus went to the cross and after his resurrection. But even in that sense, even in those, on those occasions, as far as God was concerned, from the time that Jesus came to the earth to fulfill the promise that the word of God said that he would do, to fulfill all the prophecies of, what, of the Old Testament, as far as God was concerned, they were done because he knew Jesus would follow through. So when God said to Abraham, I have made thee the father of nations, Abraham doesn't have any kids. But as far as God is concerned, it's done. Now, was it done? Well, not in the physical realm. Not according to physical reality. But remember, the spirit realm is where the power of God is. God exists, or let's say it this way, his word exists for one and only one purpose, and that is for him to fulfill it. That's the only reason God ever makes promises to us. That's the only reason he ever made promises to Abraham is so that he could be good, make good his word. So he says to Abraham, I have made thee the father of nations, father of many nations. Before him he believed, before him whom he believed. This is a real difficult translation. It's not that the translation is inaccurate. But the Greek that's, the original Greek that's translated into the English in the King James that we're reading from, where it says before him, it can also mean like unto him. Now, folks, you know that a translation, there's nothing magical about a translation. A translation may or may not even be inspired of God. But any and every translation is based on two things. Number one, the translator's understanding of the language. And number two, their understanding of God. And because revelation is progressive, there are certainly things that we know about God, things that we understand about God from the Bible, scriptural truths, that the translators of the King James English, uh, the translators of the original transcript into the King James English, we know a whole lot more about some things than they did. A whole lot more. Well, if you came upon the scripture without having been taught some of the things you heard, if you came upon the scripture where it says that Abraham had been made the father of many nations before God, with this word before God, that can mean either like unto God or standing in front of or before him. Which way are you going to translate it? Who would think that we're supposed to be like unto God? Most Christians I know of even today would take that phrase or take that interpretation, that translation, and refuse it because how can man be like God see the religious position is man can't be like God in any way but the Bible tells us that we're supposed to be Paul said to the to the Galatians be imitators of God we're supposed to love other people like God loves aren't we God tells us in the New Testament to love as we were loved as we are loved so we're supposed to be imitators when it comes to the love of God aren't we Sure. Does that imitation mean that we're trying to exalt ourselves as equal to or above God? Not in any way whatsoever. It's just what we're commanded to do. Well, the Bible says that we have like precious faith with Jesus. Like precious faith with Jesus. What that means is our faith is the same as his. Granted, his was developed to a much higher level than we may ever get to. But we're still commanded to be 
of the same spirit of faith or imitators of God where faith is concerned. So here where it says before unto him, it literally means that Abraham imitated God in two respects. He imitated God in two respects. Now the two respects are difficult for us to accept as well or difficult for some people to accept. I don't have any trouble accepting what the Bible says as long as I understand what it, what it means. So where it says he was like unto God, it means he was like in the way that he believed. Notice the two characteristics that it says of Abraham's faith that he was an imitator of God. It says God calleth things that be not as though they were and he quickens the dead. So in these two respects, Abraham acted like God. Well, as children of God, we should act like our father, shouldn't we? Jesus certainly said that those religious leaders in his day that were of the devil acted like their father. So here are the two things that Abraham was like unto God or became an imitator of God in. He began to call things that were not as though they were. He began to call things that did not appear to be in the spirit realm, or I'm sorry, in the physical realm, as if they already were because God had revealed the spirit realm to it. See, when God said, I have made thee the father of many nations, as far as God was concerned, it was a done deal. It was settled in the spirit realm, the unseen realm, and it would come to pass in the physical realm. Just as God said in the unseen realm, let there be light when he was creating the earth, light that came or came into being in the same way, the same power was behind those words that he spoke at creation as any and every other word or promise he's ever made. He said, I have made thee the father of many nations. Now, folks, that means that if we take a promise of God, unless we refuse to cooperate with it, and it's our choice, man's been given authority. God's not the one that decides whether or not you're going to get healed. God's already made his position clear on healing when Jesus died for the sins of the world and took sickness and disease upon his back for all of mankind. God's position concerning healing is settled. It's not a question of whether or not God will heal. He already has. He sent Jesus to do the work. Now all we have to do is take hold of it by faith. But isn't that the same way that salvation comes? The Bible says that God would have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And therefore the Bible tells us that Jesus was slain before the foundations of the world. Well, what, what did he die for? He died for everybody, man, woman, boy, and girl, to be saved. He provided a salvation a redemption, literally, a redemption is really a better word to use than salvation. He provided redemption for everybody. Is everybody going to go to heaven, therefore? No. The Bible says there's a lot of people that won't. How come? Because they reject God's gift of Jesus' sacrifice. Well, the same sacrifice, the same shedding of blood that Jesus took upon himself as our substitute for sin. The Bible says that same price was paid and the same blood was shed for our sickness or concerning our sickness and disease so that we could walk in health. Not a different sacrifice, same one. Isaiah 53, 5, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. That's talking about sins, both original sin and personal sin. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. Jesus paid a price so that we could have an abundance in this life. When God made Adam and Eve and put them in the Garden of Eden, there was no possibility of lack in any way whatsoever until they fell. They were the rulers of the Garden of Eden. They were the rulers of God's creation. 
I know some people don't like to hear it in these terms, but it's exactly true. Adam and Eve were the gods of this world. That doesn't mean they were above God. That means they had authority to operate on this earth according to what God had outlined for them to do. So man has the opportunity. He has the potential to reject Jesus. And even though Jesus paid for their eternal well-being, paid for their eternal life, they failed to receive. But that doesn't mean it doesn't belong to them. The same thing's true where healing is concerned. It's your choice. But now how are we going to receive? Well, we're going to receive by faith, and that's why the Bible gives us these great examples. So what is that Abraham going to do? How is he going to change things? The first promise of children was made to Abraham 25 years before it was fulfilled. When Abraham was 75 years old. It was only when he was 100 years old or about 100 years old, the Bible says, that he had the son of promise, the child of promise called Isaac. So Abraham's been operating in a certain way for 25 years or 24 years. What's going to change? What does he have to change? He's got to start acting like God in some respects. He has to start calling things that be not as though they were. He has to start calling himself what God said he had already made him. Which verse 16 tells us, or verse 17 tells us, that God has made him a father of many nations. So he has to begin to join with God, side in with God, agree with God, by saying of himself the very thing that God said of him. And folks, that is such a foundational truth. You will never live up to be who Jesus destined you to be and sacrificed himself for you to be until you say of yourself what God says of you. Yeah, but I just don't feel like it's true, Pastor Mike. I'm saying things that I know aren't real in the physical realm. That's why you need to say them. Because the more you say them, the more you enlist God's power to change you, to bring you to the place that God's word says you already have been destined for. So Abraham had to do two things. He had to start calling himself the father of many nations, and he did that. That's the reason God changed his name from Abram to Abraham. He began to call himself by God's new name for him, which is Abraham, which means father of many nations. So he had to change his name. God had already done so. God's the one that gave him the new name, so he had to side in and agree with God by calling himself what God said of him. And the second part of this, what Abraham became an imitator of God like, the area that he became an imitator of God, that's really difficult for us because it says God quickens the dead. How is Abraham, or anybody for that matter, how is Abraham going to be an imitator of God concerning quickening the dead? I don't have power to raise dead things, do you? Well, the answer to that may be different than what you think. Through our words, we can do what Abraham did, which is he began to speak life to his body. He began to speak life to his body. Let's continue reading. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations. Before him are like unto him whom he believed. Even God who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were. Who against hope believed in hope. That he might become the father of many nations. That just simply means he didn't have one thing in this physical realm. To agree with what God said about him having children. So if he can't get any hope from what he can see and feel around him. And in and of himself, where's he going to get hope from? 
His hope is in what God said. His hope was the only, or what God said was the only basis that he had for any hope of having children whatsoever. Who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations. In other words, Abraham came to the place where he realized something's got to happen in the unseen realm. I've got to start taking hold of the promise of God through the unseen realm in order for things to happen and come to pass as God said they would be. Abraham said, I have to do something. And he did. Who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations. Where was the the basis of his hope? According to that which was spoken. What God had said to him. What did God say? He showed him the stars of the sky and asked him to number them. And Abraham said they're beyond number. And God said so shall your seed be. Now Abraham's taking hold of something that he can't see. He's taking hold of the promise of God that's unseen to his physical eyes. Verse 19, and being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about 100 years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. Folks, I want you to see a couple of things here. Abraham did not believe anything other than God would do what he promised. He took the word of God in spite of everything else that was going on, in spite of his age, in spite of the deadness of Sarah's womb, in spite of the fact that their bodies didn't function in the way that would be necessary to have children. He didn't consider any of those things to be worthy obstacles or hindrances. To God's word coming to pass. Let me stay there for a minute. Because this is so important. He didn't deny that he was 100 years old. He didn't deny the deadness of Sarah's womb. He didn't deny that his body. Neither one of their bodies. Worked in a reproductive manner any longer. Because of their advanced age. He didn't deny any of those things. He recognized that those were physical realities. But he didn't let the things that he saw. He didn't let the physical realities of his situation or Sarah's become a hindrance. He didn't count them as a worthy hindrance to keep the promise of God from coming to pass and being realized. Now, if we adjust that to believing for healing, this is healing school. So we talk and try to focus on things regarding healing of the sick or from sickness and disease. It would be the same thing as us making a choice of what we're going to look at, whether it's physical symptoms, whether it's pain in our body, or whether it's the Word of God. And remember, faith is the evidence of things not seen. There's always, always, always going to be a conflict between what God's Word says and the physical reality. Always. It's like many times we come to the place where we believe God's word, we take hold of it, we begin to speak it, and then all of a sudden we'll have an increase in symptoms. Or there'll be pain come against us. Or something about our physical condition changes and changes for the worse. And that's the point where a lot of people give up on the truth of God's word. It's like they don't expect or they never expected that the devil would stand his ground when we began to put the word of God in practice in our lives. But Abraham recognized that none of the physical realities of his life 
of his relationship and even of his wife's body, none of those physical realities were worthy to change, alter, or hinder God's word from coming to pass in any way whatsoever. He did not allow his belief to be shaped and formed in any manner by the things that he saw and felt. His faith was in one and only one thing, and that was what God had said. He considered not his own body now dead when he was about 100 years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. What did he look at? Well, remember Paul said, 2 Corinthians 4.18, Paul said to look at things that are not seen. The things that can be seen are temporal or subject to change, but the things that can't be seen are eternal. Abraham kept his eyes on what God said no matter what he felt like, no matter whether there seemed to be an improvement in his body or not, whether symptoms cropped up and showed themselves in conflict with God's word, none of that mattered with him. He became fully persuaded by keeping his eyes on the word of God. He became fully persuaded that what God had promised he was able also to perform. He didn't deny the circumstances. He didn't deny the symptoms. He didn't deny his age or the age of Sarah. And there are certain physical realities that come with advanced age. He didn't deny any of those things. He just kept his eyes on the word of God instead. He didn't try to fight the devil. He didn't try to stand his ground with the devil, telling the devil what was and was not with his flesh. He just looked at the promise of God. He kept his eyes focused on the promise of God. Now, folks, there's another example that I want to interject here, an Old Testament example, and that's the example of Noah. I'm sorry, not Noah. What am I trying to say? Jonah. You remember the story of Jonah? God tells him to go to Nineveh which is the Babylonian capital. The Babylonians had captured and taken prisoner the children of Israel. And so when God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh, the capital city of the Babylonians, he told him, he gave him news up front that if they did not repent, that within a certain matter of time, a short few months, they would be destroyed. Well, Jonah hated the Babylonians. Probably all the people, all the Jews, the people of Israel did. They hated them for their mistreatment of them. The fact that they overthrew them and held them captive and so forth. Jonah didn't want those people to be saved. He didn't want those people to repent. And so he got on the ship and went the other direction. Well, you remember the storm that came up. The sailors finally figured out that something is not right here. This is not a natural storm. We've never experienced anything like this. So they started trying to find out from the people on board. Is your God after you? And is he the one behind this? Finally, Jonah stands up and says, it's me. This is the work of God. You're not going to be saved unless you throw me overboard. And then they had to be talked into it. They wouldn't do it right away because they were afraid they would anger God because they assumed that they'd be throwing Jonah to his death by throwing him overboard. And finally, Jonah says, this is your last chance. Get rid of me or else you're going to perish. So they did. They threw him overboard. And the Bible tells us that God had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. You wouldn't expect a fish to be your means of deliverance, would you? 
So now here's Jonah in the belly of the fish. I'm not sure we could accurately describe the situation and the circumstance that he was surrounded by, literally surrounded by. But I can't imagine it was a pleasant experience. So here's a backslidden prophet in the belly of a fish. And it would seem to you and me that that would be the end of the story. But Jonah cried out to God in the belly of the fish. He changed his attitude. He agreed to go to Nineveh. And he called on God to deliver him. Now, folks, let's think about this and, and, and consider what's going on here. Jonah sinned. He sinned in such a way that should have, in our thinking, human thinking, human reasoning, that could have and perhaps should have disqualified him from being used of God. How many times does the devil try to disqualify us or tell us that we're disqualified from anything and everything that God has provided for us because of our sin? Even an Old Testament prophet that doesn't know a lot about the word that we know of, things we take for granted, they would have loved to have known and seen. But Jonah did not consider his own sin to be a disqualifier. And he was right. So... He's back in fellowship with God. His sins are forgiven, but he's still in the belly of that fish. That's not where he wanted to be. That's not where God wanted him to be. So Jonah's got a choice. He can look at his physical circumstance. And you do understand, of course, that if he's in the belly of the fish, unless God had specifically done something with and to the fish that we don't have record of, the digestive process is going on with Jonah in the middle of it. It's very possible that the elements of the fish digestive system was such that it was burning his flesh. I can imagine it might have been something like him being in a vat of, of acid. And he looks around, and all he can see is fish. Literally. All he can see is fish. And he said this. Now, here's the conflict. God said, go to, Geneva, go to Nineveh and preach so that the people would repent. Or the other, on the other hand, he's surrounded by the belly of the fish. He's in the belly of the fish. As far as God is concerned, one is true and one's a lie. In Romans chapter 4, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, it's not Romans chapter 4. It's Romans chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. Paul talks about the law, the, the uh, gospel being first given to the Jews. And then he talks about the fact that they rejected it. And he asked a very simple question. He said, but what if some don't believe? Shall that nullify the word of God? Then he answers his own question. He says, God forbid. Let every man be a liar. Let God be true, but every man be a liar. Well, folks, if that's true of people that reject the gospel, why would that not be true of circumstances that don't line up with what God said belong to us? Sees one thing is true and one thing is not. Either God's word is true concerning our healing or the symptoms of sickness are true. Which one is it? You have to decide for yourself. In Abraham's case, according to Romans chapter 4, Abraham believed that the circumstances were liars. He believed that the circumstances, the deadness of Sarah's womb, 
the age of his own body, what his bodies did or did not do relative to the reproductive process. He called those things lies and God's word to be true. What about Jonah? What's he going to do? He's surrounded with fish. But now he's back in the place that God wanted him to be. He's willing to go to Nineveh. He could have saved himself a lot of time, a lot of trouble, and so forth. Granted. But because he repented, turned back to God, he's now God's prophet sent to the Assyrians, or the Babylonians, rather. So what does he do? He makes a statement that shows what he believes. Jonah chapter 2 and verse 8, he said this. He said, they that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercies. Put that in Abraham's context. Abraham considered not his own body now dead, neither the deadness of Sarah's womb. It says he didn't deny it. It just says he didn't consider it. He recognized that all the physical symptoms, all the physical realities that said he could not be or could not become the father of many nations. He counted all of those things as lies. He said God's true. God's word is true. No matter what. Well, you know the end of the story with Jonah. God steers the the fish to the shores of Nineveh. The fish vomits Jonah up on, on the shore. What an entrance to town. Here's a guy being vomited up by a fish. Now you fill in the blanks on what you think he looked like and smelled like and and appeared. But here's a prophet of God climbing out of the vomit of a fish saying, God sent me here to you. But that's exactly the way it happened. Perhaps God intended Jonah to show up in a different manner. But the consequences of Jonah's rebellion changed those things. But it didn't alter God's plan for him or for the people he sent him to. Where it says that Abraham considered not his own body now dead. What that means and very simply what it means is he kept looking at the promise of God and not at the symptoms. He recognized that the word of God and the symptoms can't both be true. There's the conflict. And there will always be a conflict between faith and reality. Always. See, folks, if things in a physical reality are going well for you, you don't have to have faith or exercise faith to change them. So the things that you and I exercise faith toward, the things that we exercise faith to receive, are always going to be in conflict with natural and physical circumstances. Always. And when the things change, the temporal things change as a result of our faith and we receive the promise that God made to us, then we don't need faith anymore. Because we have the things that we've asked for. When you have something, there's no need to believe for it. So there's always the conflict between physical realities and faith. Abraham called the conditions of his body and the conditions of Sarah's womb, what the Bible calls the deadness of Sarah's womb, he considered those to be lying vanities. And as a result... It turned out just exactly the way God said that it would. The promise of God was fulfilled. Abraham and Sarah give birth to a child, Isaac, the son of promise, through whom all the nations of the earth are blessed. God's word came to pass. 
his seed became as the, as the stars in the sky beyond number. Just like God said. Folks, no matter what physical realities are staring us in the face, no matter what symptoms come against us, no matter how long the symptoms last or persist, God's word is always true. And anything that contradicts it is a lie. It's a lie designed by the devil to make you turn loose of your profession of faith. The devil couldn't care less about you and me personally, individually. What he cares about is what we're believing. He wants us to reject God's word just like he rejected God. Anything short of that, and he's cooked. You know what I mean by that, I assume? The devil does not have the power to stop God's word from coming to pass. All it takes is agreement on our part where we begin to accept it to be true no matter what conflict there is with physical reality or physical circumstance. We take it to heart and begin to speak with our mouths. All the power of hell itself can't stop that from coming to pass. And that's why the Bible encourages us so specifically and so many times not to turn loose of our profession of faith. Don't give up on confessing God's word, no matter what it looks like or how you feel. Don't ever quit confessing God's word. Once the words of faith are spoken, that's it. Never turn back on them. Never, ever, ever turn back on them. Because no matter how it looks, no matter how it feels, no matter how long it's been or what's transpired since God spoke, God's word is always true. I love that phrase that Jonah said. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. The fish wasn't enough to stop Jonah. He knew he had God's word. He knew what God's plan for his life was. Even though he had sinned and rebelled by running the other way, he knew that once he got back in place, right place with God, nothing could stop his word from being fulfilled. Folks, that's what delights God's, God more than anything else is to be able to make good through our faith the things that he's promised us to have. That's what pleases God. That's why without faith it's impossible to please God. That's why faith is so important because it's the only way, the only means, the only method to receive anything and everything of the blessings of Abraham upon us. Faith pleases God because that gives him an avenue to bless us. And that's what he wants to do. He wants to show us his goodness and his mercy. And he can only do that when we operate in faith. Faith based on his word and his promise. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you so much. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your word that shows us who we are in Christ, what he has done for us, what you desired for us to have, and who we are in him. Father, we thank you that no matter the circumstance that we face, no matter the symptoms that would come against us, no matter what, your word is true. A million people can choose not to believe, but your word is always true. 
and we choose to take hold of it by faith. Jesus said, what things soever we desire when we pray, believe that we receive them and we shall have them. We believe we receive our healing. And we thank you for doing it, whatever is necessary to see to it that we have it. In spite of circumstance, in spite of symptoms, in spite of pain, in spite of anything, there is nothing that comes against us that is great enough or powerful enough to stop your word from coming to pass in our lives. We love you, Father. We thank you for teaching us in Jesus' name. And if you can agree with that, say amen. 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 Well, God bless you. Thank you so much for being with us.